Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. On this program, we talk a lot about how U.S.-Israel relations are impacted by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the question of annexation, but there are other factors that are heavily impacting that relationship, specifically the China-Israel relationship, which is weighing heavily on Israel's own ties with the United States. In recent days, we've seen administration officials say that Israel needs to more thoroughly screen Chinese investments. Chinese companies have won tenders for major infrastructure projects in Israel, and it seems that these items are all coming to a head around the issue of Israel-China relations. And of course, China is all over the headlines in the age of COVID-19. So to further illuminate these issues, we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Shira Efron. Shira is a policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum and, of course, a regular guest on our podcast. In parallel, she's also a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. And you could say that Shira quite literally wrote the book on China-Israel relations because she was also a co-author of the book, The Evolving Israel-China Relationship, which was published by Rand in 2019. Shira, thanks for joining. Thank you, Evan, for having me. And yes, I led that research, but I had uh, wonderful co-authors. And just to put another plug for uh, Rand, we had a dive in into uh, one of the topics that we explore in the initial report, um, looking specifically at Chinese investments in Israeli technology and infrastructure, which was just published uh, about a month ago. And we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes, along with a recent article that you published for Israel Policy Forum on some of these issues surrounding the Israel-China relationship, which was posted to our website today. So to dive into it, we know that the U.S.-Israel relationship has a big political security element. When people think of the Israeli relationship with Europe, they might think of trade and tourism. What's the bedrock of the Israel-China relationship? You know, it's it's a, it's a really good question because the bedrock of ties uh, has changed substantially. I think maybe not many people know that, but Israel was the first country in the Middle East to recognize the People's Republic of China, the PRC, in uh, 1950. And after that, Israel and China, they took some tentative steps to establish, you know, formal diplomatic ties. But these attempts did not succeed because... They were on the opposing sides of the Cold War and pressured by third parties. Uh, Israel was pressured by the United States and China was pressured by the Arab countries. But that doesn't mean that they didn't develop a relationship. In 1979, uh, an American Jewish, American Israeli businessman, Saul Eisenberg, he helped to arrange a secret meeting between um, Israeli and Chinese officials uh, that led to uh, many, many deals to transfer defense technology from Israel to China. And that was the bedrock of ties over over the, the uh, following two decades. The two countries maintain secret contacts uh, that mostly centered on military technology transfers from Israel to China, and they're estimated that between one and two billion dollars, uh, uh, and there were uh, recorded uh, some uh, 60 transactions. We can talk about this a little bit later, but in the uh, late 90s and early 2000, there were two major setbacks 
resulting from U.S. Uh, pressure and U.S. objection to specific deals that Israel sold China uh, advanced technology. And Israel was basically forced by the United States to cool off their defense relationship with China. In 2013, after the Israeli-China relationship suffered some a setback, you can say that Israel pivoted to China again. Uh, Israel wanted to diversify its trade partners from, you know, the traditional Europe and the United States. China uh, has emerged as a power with with, uh, financial assets, and Israel wanted to uh, benefit from this capital. Um, Since 2013, although there are no defense ties between Israel and China, and Israel no longer sells China and military technologies that could get it into uh, serious trouble with the United States, we're seeing more and more trade uh, academic partnerships. There are um, uh, partnerships, it's called the 7 plus 7 academic partnerships between universities in China and in Israel. We're seeing tourism that is on the rise, more direct flights than ever. And also the field that I think is most interesting, and this is why, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, this issue has been in the news this week, um, is we're seeing more and more Chinese investment into Israeli uh, infrastructure, including infrastructure. Um, Shira, you started to touch on some incidents that happened in the 1990s and the early 2000s, specifically when Israel tried to supply China with AWACS systems, uh, airborne warning and, and control systems, and with military drones. And those both caused crises in the relationship between Israel and the United States. How did those incidents impact U.S.-Israel relations in the long term, and how have they colored the relationship between Israel and China going forward? So yes, so the, the incidents are known as the Falcon and the Harpy. Falcon advanced airborne radar system on surveillance plans. There was a deal for Israel to install these, uh, these systems for the People Liberation Army Air Force. From the U.S. perspective, there was a concern that such early warning capabilities would um, would really give China, provide China with greater control of airspace and uh, even tip the balance of power in uh, a possible U.S.-China conflict in the Taiwan Strait. The United States also said, uh, Israel disagreed, but the United States argued that the Falcon was a U.S.-originated technology and Israel cannot sell U.S.-originated technology to the U.S. adversaries. This, you know, incident was really embarrassing to Israel. It had to cancel the deal and compensate uh, China. But it really didn't significantly affect relations, at least between Israel and China, because China just uh, chose to primarily blame the United States. From the U.S. perspective, this was a big deal that was compartmentalized, was kept uh, within uh, the communications between the Defense Department. Everyone took notice. It was a big issue. Everyone that worked uh, on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, remembers this uh, at the time. The the implications, except for severe U.S., uh, we've seen U.S. anger, but there were no practical implications. The second incident uh, took place in 2005. This one involved upgrades to the Harpy UAVs, drones that Israel was supposed to provide uh, to China. After (laughs) this happened, the U.S. demanded that Israel severe all defense relations with China, all of them. Also, the United States demanded that Israel change the the structure of its export control regime. During this incident, and this had really practical implication, the U.S. stopped cooperation with Israel on the F-35 joint strike fighter program. It 
the United States also demanded not only that Israel cancel the Harpy deal um, and change the structure of its export law, but also it demanded the resignation of senior Ministry of Defense officials, as well as an agreement that all defense transfers and dual-use exports to China be subject to U.S. approvals. According to a very senior former U.S. official at the National Security Council, this incident, the Harpy incident, almost ruined the special relationship with Israel. And I'm reminding you, it's 2005, it's the Bush administration, very close with the Ariel Sharon government here in Israel, and this was the feeling there, that it was so threatening to the special relationship. Was there ever a sense on the Israeli part that these weapons transfers to China might be unwise, not only for their implications on ties with the United States, but also because China has a security relationship with countries like, for example, Iran, which it sells weapons to, and is Iran, of course, a government which is hostile both to Israel and to the United States? You know, I think this is clearly something that Israel is aware of. But the fact is that if you look just at the number of deals that have occurred since the Islamic, uh, the, the, the revolution in Iran and uh, the 2000s when Israel was forced to stop, it clearly shows that this, even though if it was a consideration, it was a consideration that was pushed aside. It is I think, important to put it in context. You know, Israel, as uh, you know very well and your listeners know probably very well, Israel is in a tough neighborhood. And Israel's security realm, the security perception, the threat perception, the personnel, the experts, they're very much focused on the region, uh, regional experts for each, uh, you know, Arab country. Um, and also, of course, a lot of expertise on Iran. There's also a big awareness of Europe and under- good understanding of Europe and of the United States. China is just not, it's not in Israel's uh, even uh, uh, rear view, right? Israel does not see China as a threat. There are only a handful of modern China experts in Israel, and they're not even integrated uh, systematically into decision-making processes. When you ask these questions of like, what do you think? You're saying, what what the implication? Because this Chinese company is not a private company, but it's actually a public company that's also building a rail line uh, between Tehran and Sahan. Frankly, I don't know that I can tell you as many people in Israel that should be in positions of making decisions know these facts. There is much more awareness today resulting from U.S pressure. And the the discourse has changed in the last couple of years. But when you're looking back at the Harpy and the Falcon, I I don't think this is what people, that is what Israelis were concerned about. Speaking of U.S. pressure, the recent tension between Israel and the United States surrounding the Israel-China relationship has been related to Chinese investment, Chinese involvement in infrastructure projects in Israel, which you spoke about earlier on the show. Chinese companies have been awarded tenders for these important infrastructure projects in Israel. Why are these kinds of Chinese investments seen as problematic in Washington? And what does the United States want Israel to be doing in this situation? There are two issues, and we could talk, we can give specific examples of where where the points of uh, reported friction, at least, are now. But access to critical infrastructure, if you have a foreign company 
and in this case, we're talking about Chinese companies that present their own unique uh, challenges. If you have a, a, a foreign company build and operate critical infrastructure, there's no question they will get access to data, possibly a convenient uh, position for uh, collecting information, collecting intelligence, both uh, human intelligence and uh, human SIGINT and electronic intelligence. From the United States perspective, Israel letting Chinese companies that unlike companies in the Western world that we know have all been found by U.S. government agencies to be connected in one way or another to the Communist Party, to the government, to the People's Liberation Authority, or to other groups, um, granting uh, Chinese companies access to critical infrastructure means that China would have a substantial foothold in Israel. On the technology piece, you know, the big competition, the competition between the United States and China spans a few domains, right? There's the military one, obviously a diplomatic one and it's how should the global uh, system look like what would be the balance of power but a big 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 part of it is technological rivalry china wants to be uh, a technology superpower and it challenges u.s dominance in this field from the u.s perspective and this is not just true about israel if the u.s wants to stand up to the china challenge to rise to the china challenge and ensure that it keeps its edge uh, in technology. It needs to ensure that its allies don't provide China with access to the same technology that the U.S. tries to deny China. So the United States uh, in recent years, especially the Trump administration, has approached several of its allies. We're talking about Australia and the U.K. and Germany and others and asked them to limit engagement with China, especially on what we call the 5G, pointing at companies like Huawei and ZTE that have been in the news in the uh, last few years. And Israel is no different, right? The United States has come to Israel with, with the same requests. I think what's different with the Israeli case, however, that first of all, there's this baggage from the Falcon and Harpy uh, incidents, which, you know, still cast a shadow on this issue. Another, uh, another dimension is that, you know, Israel has no other ally. There's no choice. Uh, Israel is not really in between China and the United States. Israel's uh, most important strategic ally is the United States. It relies on the United States for uh, security and diplomacy and from Israel's perspective, if the United States says no, Israel has no substitutes, whereas uh, the UK can say to the United States, we appreciate your concerns, but we're still going to go with Huawei in our network. Israel is in a bit of a different position. So we've been talking about investments and infrastructure. What kind of investments and what kinds of technology are we talking about? In our study, uh, we tried to capture all the deals that have occurred in the last few years, and we were able to identify 42 Chinese companies that invest in Israel. And out of these, there are probably 11 that raise most concerns. I'll just give a couple of examples. It's important to look at the Chinese investors and why are they, what are the risks associated with this, but also the targets of their investment. ZTE, for instance, it's a network and telecom equipment company which invested in an Israeli company, Rainbow Medical. ZTE is known and it's been proven to have ties to the Chinese government and military. And it also has business in Iran. In fact, it sold surveillance and other equipment to Iran in violation of sanctions. This is a company that invests in Israel. Baidu 
It's a web services company that also conducts uh, artificial intelligence uh, research in autonomous cars. It invests in five Israeli tech companies and venture capitals. And of course, Huawei that I mentioned before, it, in, it invests in at least two Israeli companies, Toga Networks and Hexateer. And the investment in Toga was initially disguised for an unclear reason, but that's raised more suspicions. The issue is that there's a fear that investment in technology in Israeli technologies means that Israeli intellectual property will not be left will not be kept in Israel. All the sensitive tech data would basically go to China, eroding Israeli competitiveness. This is a big, big, big concern. The second issue is that if you look at um, how the United States today defines the issue of it's not about military technologies. It's not even about what we define as dual use technologies, meaning technologies that can say, oh, this can be used uh, for civilian purposes, but also for military purposes. Today, we're talking, the United States talk about what the dual use of the future is. The expansive definition of national security now uh, includes artificial intelligence, biotech, uh, robotics, positioning and targeting. And most of the investments of Chinese investments in Israeli companies touch on these areas that the United States now uh, defines as emerging and foundational technologies that deserve extra protection. Recently, Israel convened an advisory panel to screen foreign investments into the country. Even though it wasn't named, it's clear that the aim was to monitor Chinese activity. Why are Israel and the United States still experiencing these kinds of problems and tensions despite that effort? So this is a very good question. So actually, it's a very new development in Israel in response to mounting U.S. pressure on Chinese investment in infrastructure and Israeli technology. In October 2019, uh, the Israeli cabinet announced that it would establish a screening mechanism uh, to monitor foreign investments. And of course, as you said, not specifying China, but it was very clear that this was uh, China sort of was in the back mind of this uh, creation. This was really a welcome step in the right direction because Israel has never had such a committee. And it's important not just not to make the U.S. upset, but also for Israel's own considerations, right? It's important to weigh foreign investments, any investment, not just from Israel, uh, against their pros and cons and, and balance the different considerations. The problem is that, at least for now, there's no evidence that this committee is actually working. It has structural and legal limitations, uh, which I also address in the blog post, but I can mention here quickly. But even under those limitations, I'm not sure it's working. Let's see what's uh, what, what's wrong about it. First of all, it was established by a caretaker government. You know, IPF has been covering this issue very well. Israel has not had a stable permanent government uh, in some time now. And I don't think any government now would overturn this decision. But it still needs to be legislated. It will likely have to be legalized in the Knesset. And this legislation process could take a long time. Second... Unlike parallel committees, CFIUS as known in the United States, it's defined as an advisory committee. So regulators, not politicians, could voluntarily seek the advice of the committee, but then they can get the advice and say, well, we heard you, but no thanks, we're going ahead with what we want. The advice itself is not binding. In addition, the committee is tasked with reviewing investments in the field of infrastructure, which is great, but uh, not in the technology sector. So basically, the big thing that the United States is worried about is not within the committee's mandate. 
which is a big, big, big issue. And as I said before, I think the goal in establishing this committee or the, the at least part of the goal uh, is to satisfy the United States. I think this is where uh, this committee uh, fails short. The case of Sorek B that you mentioned at the beginning, the desalination plant near the Air, uh, Air Force Base Pabachim, all of a sudden exposed another limitation that uh, analysts were not aware about before. Because when the United States asked, how come Hutchinson, a Chinese company, is seems like a front runner in this tender, Israeli officials said, well, the committee cannot advise retroactively on the tender that was issued before the committee was established. From what I heard from Americans, they said, well, it's not like we're asking you to uh, cancel a deal that was already made, buy back an Israeli food company from China as a result of the uh, committee's deliberations. But this tender has not been finalized. You don't have a winner yet, at the very least. What you can do is uh, convene the committee and discuss this case. So far, we're not seeing this happening. But the Ministry of Finance is supposed to make the final decision on the tender uh, May 24th. So we're talking about uh, less than 20 days from now. Convening the committee might mean uh, delaying the tender. Israel needs the water. It's complicated uh, on multiple fronts. But U.S. response to this issue, uh, I think, illustrates that this is not going anywhere. This type of tension. Last question before we close out this episode. When we talk about Israel-China relations and China generally, we can't escape the fact that we're in this COVID-19 era where, rightly or wrongly, there's significant U.S.-China tension surrounding the pandemic. I mean, in recent days, we've seen Secretary of State Mike Pompeo allege that there's evidence that the coronavirus originated in a Chinese lab. And whether or not that's true is almost beside the point. Have the tensions related to this pandemic and this crisis that we're all in been borne out in Israel-China relations? Well, I think so. I think I think that if in January some analysts thought, okay, there's a ceasefire, China and the U.S. signed uh, the first phase of, of the trade agreement, and maybe we can breathe a little bit now and U.S. allies are going to be less pressured on their business with China. Now we're seeing that, as you said, due to COVID tensions, the hostility between Beijing and Washington is only rising. This has multiple effects on U.S. allies and, and Israel is included. I'll give you an example. It's only a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Israeli Ministry of Health decided to allow the Chinese company BGI Genomics, which is a very controversial company, don't get me wrong, but it let it partner with uh, an Israeli company, MyHeritage, to build a COVID-19 testing lab. And as you know, in the United States and Israel, and we're talking about two weeks ago, all we need is tests, tests, tests. Despite the need for tests, despite the fact that it's not clear to me why a facility built in partnership with BGI Genomics that provide machines that are supposed to destroy DNA, extract RNA to detect an RNA virus, would send back all Israeli DNA data back to Beijing. But the fact is that this is how it was seen in some circles in Washington. Uh, And this is an indication. I think another area where we might see it is that both the United States and Europe now have said that they would put investments in biotech and meditech and basically all the supply chain on pharmaceuticals and, and protective equipment and other public health research under increased scrutiny not to receive foreign investments and you know we're 
we're using the term foreign, but but it's, they are talking about Chinese investments. Um, so we probably can expect that more Chinese investments would uh, turn to Israel in those areas. Israeli companies need the capital on one hand, and if the United States and Europe are going to be more protective, they might not be eager to invest outside uh, in those areas. But on the other hand, what was seen, at least in Israeli eyes, is purely civilian, commercial, its health. What is the problem? Is probably now going to draw more criticism from the United States. Shira, thank you for sharing your insights in this topic, and thank you for joining us on this episode. As I mentioned earlier, we will provide links in the description of this podcast to some of Shira's work on Israel-China relations, and of course, I encourage everyone to go and read her article on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. I also want to invite everyone to keep coming back to our Tuesday video briefing series. Our next program is going to be on Tuesday, May 12th at the regular time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. We are going to be featuring Israela Oron and Shaul Ariely of Commanders for Israel Security, speaking on the security impact of West Bank annexation. And you can find more information about that program at ipf.li forward slash May 12th. For our IPF Atid Young Professionals, I also want to invite you to a program on May 13th, next Wednesday. We're going to have a digital roundtable on Israeli-Palestinian affairs and the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda, featuring Dr. Liat Biron from the Forum for Regional Thinking, Obama Foundation scholar Wafa Ebenberry, and Dr. Shira Efron. You're going to be on that as well, and that's going to be moderated by IPF Atid's Adam Moscow. And for details on that, you can go to ipf.li forward slash WPS 513. And lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, if you're a regular listener of Israel Policy Pod, you know that we've been putting out two episodes a week, basically since the onset of all of the shelter-in-place orders and the coronavirus pandemic. We've been running our weekly webinar series. Last week's program drew over 700 participants and we're continuing to convene IPFAT Young Professional Gatherings. Michael Koplow's column continues to be a really highly sought-after source of analysis and commentary on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And of course, we also have other great analyses from our other analysts like Shira. So if you find all of those resources valuable, and if you're able, I encourage you to make a contribution in support of Israel Policy Forum's work, and you can do that on our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thanks for your continued engagement and support of Israel Policy Forum, and we will catch you on our next episode.